everyone, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's a weird feeling doing an interview. I haven't done one in, I don't know, Spencer, it's been a while, right? A few, few weeks at least. Yeah, even it's, closer to a lot of people. That's so wild. I can't remember the last time I did that. It's like, it's like you haven't gone on, on a run in a long time. So today, everyone, we have a guest that I'm real excited about, uh, someone who is both a friend and someone that I've worked with uh, for many years. So Karis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy that we got the training wheels back on. <laughs> totally, totally. Okay, so big question to start. Uh, tell us about who you are and what you do. Big question indeed. Um, <clears throat> so who I am, I guess, is multifaceted. I think um, ultimately from a professional perspective, I'm an HR leader. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the, the easiest way to, to put it in a bucket. Um, but it, it goes deeper than that. I think, you know, my, my purpose really is around supporting, helping others to be able to bring them their best selves to work mm -hmm. and to be able to, you know, really kind of um, be able to be authentic, but at the same time, bring a lot of value and feel valued in their working environment. We spend so much time at work and being able to see people thrive and flourish and grow and develop is just such a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. So I love that. But I'm also a mum. I'm a wife. Mm -hmm. um, I play soccer. I ride motorbikes. Um, you know, there's uh, I hike with my dog in the in the mountains here in, in North Vancouver um, from the UK originally moved over here just over 10 years ago with my family and uh, fell in love with the place and decided we never leave. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of a, on, on the surface mm -hmm. who I am. Yeah. Well, thank you. You've had a really storied career, but I want to hit you with something tough right off the bat. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Go on. Well, okay. Like <laughs> you'll know this because you, you've also come up in different kinds of businesses and had yeah. different kinds of roles. HR is a, an interesting, it can have different perspectives. So for example, sometimes I'll work with companies and HR will be relegated to almost just the the task handlers, like yep. go take care of these things for us. Yep. In other companies, um, they can be viewed as kind of like the the rule makers and the people who keep things the from police. happening. Yeah, yeah, the police, like yeah. the, the, the company fun police. police. Yeah, yeah. Like, or just even the company police. Yeah. Uh, and it's an interesting thing because like you and I know the value of having a strong, like really, really strong HR team, mm. strong HR leader. Um, I would say these different ideas of how people interact with HR could be like strong business partner or uh, have a great seat at the table, or it's like, oh, they're the police or they're just the task doers. Mm. What do you think the key ingredient is from your perspective on how you've built your career on having a seat at the table as an HR leader, like being considered as like, oh, this is just another business function. You're a business leader. What's the key ingredient of being able to have that seat at the table and then build an HR team that is are truly viewed as business people in the in the business? Yeah, this is a great question. I love it. And I, I love blowing the doors off the stereotypes around HR because I don't have a traditional HR background. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not classically trained in HR. I've come up from a very, very different route. And so, um, you know, when we talk about HR, in its more traditional, um, I guess, more kind of stereotypical way, that's not who I am. So I don't bring that to the table. And, you know, anytime that I've moved jobs, I've always been really honest about that. That's, that's not, um, that's not my background. I'm, I'm not kind of classically trained in that way. So being able to kind of take a step away from what the, the kind of core perception of, of HR is, um, has been something that comes naturally to me because I, I never grew up that way. So it's, it's kind of fun in some sense. I think there's a couple of things. I think 
you know, ultimately what it comes down to is the majority of most businesses cost is on their people. Mm -hmm. Like in a lot of organizations I've worked at, it's anywhere between kind of 60 to 90% of the cost of the company is spent on people. Mm -hmm. And whether that's salaries, whether that's benefits, whether that's uh, training, learning and development, whatever it might be. And so if as an organization, you're literally spending the majority of the money that you make and earn and then the profit that comes from that on people, why wouldn't you pay a lot of attention to how your people are treated, developed, grown, attracted, retained? Like it's such a huge expense for an organization that even if you just take out, well, it's the right thing to do, even if you take that away from it, it's like, this is your biggest cost. So why wouldn't you have somebody with a strategic mindset around managing people at the top table? Because it doesn't make sense to do it any other way. Hmm. Right. But what's the key ingredient to getting there though? Like, and, yeah. and to be real, even more precise, you know, uh, I'm always kind of horrified when I, pe I understand why people do it. They talk about like, um, profit centers versus cost centers. Yeah. And like, I understand why people do it. Like what brings money in versus what costs us money. Yeah. But like, it's kind of a crazy way of thinking. Cause so many yeah. people put focus on their, on their like quote unquote profit centers. But it's like, yeah. if you look at HR, like a cost center, it's like, viewing it as like something I look at it almost like an, I look at HR in a positive way, like investment bankers, like yes. you put all your trust in investment yes. bankers, right? Cause you want to grow, you know, you want to grow your assets. Yeah, yeah. Your assets. That's it. Why wouldn't you do that? But that kind of cost center versus profit center thinking is, is partially what I think is at the core of this, but going back to the initial question, what's the key to, to, to being an HR leader that has like a real seat at the table? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think that there's, um, you know, first of all, you do have to dispel some of the myth mm -hmm. in terms of what it is HR is there to do, because there is a lot of um, mis misconception around what HR is there to do. And once you dispel that myth through education, um, through relationship building, through working with leaders and executives across the organization, mm -hmm. um, and a recognition of the, of the value and importance, then you have an opportunity to be able to get not just invited to that table, but, you know, valued at that table mm -hmm. and as part of the core conversation. And then it becomes the opportunity, you know, when people are having discussions around how to change something, improve something, reduce something, whatever it might be at that top table, it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we have the people on board to do that? Mm -hmm. Like, who do we need to do this? And who, who's got the skill set to do this? And then it's not just, um, a nice to have HR at the table. It's, it's an imperative to have HR at the table. So I think a lot of it has to go into the, you know, the, the leaders within HR being able to demonstrate those, that, that kind of core value to the organization, dispel some of the myths about what, you know, what HR is there to do, and then be able to provide, um, strategies and, um, uh, and, um, actions and incentive and initiatives that will actually move the needle in terms of where you want to go. And so a lot of that comes from um, being able to demonstrate the ROI, like what is the return on the investment in the people side of things, and being able to demonstrate in, in, that in a way that leaders across different functions is able to actually grasp. So some of that will be conceptual, some of that will be factual, some of that will be data-driven, some of that will be um, more creative in, in a sense. It depends on who you're working with, but you need to be able to adapt to the person that you're speaking with and their background and their experiences to be able to, to, to demonstrate that value so that the, the, then it becomes no question. Well, of course, HR is gonna be there. Yeah, well, if you think of yourself, let's say five years ago in your career, and then 
mm. two years ago in your career and then now? So it's a kind of a three-stage question. What did, you, what did you change from five years ago to two years ago that helped you do that? And then what did you change from two years ago to now to help you achieve where you're at now in terms of like so being much. that business? <laughs> well, yeah, like a lot, right? It's a tough question though, because I want you to think like, what was the thing that got me to that two-year space? Because, mm. and I'm picking these timeframes because you've been now in different jobs within yeah. those timeframes. So what are the things that you've changed from two years to five or from five years to two years? What were the main changes that you made to kind of take that seat at the table and hold it? I think that, that yeah, <clears throat> some of it comes with um, just some some like internal changes around how you how you view things, how you perceive things, how you mature, how you gain experience, and and then from that how you grow confidence. Mm -hmm. So I think that some things that have changed in me that kind of five to two years was certainly around confidence mm -hmm. in being able to interact and engage on a on a much deeper level with executive leadership. I think that was a, a, a definite kind of shift from an internal perspective. Um, but then externally, um, and you'll laugh, you'll laugh at this, <clears throat> being able to uh, report up is so important. And you know this, like I had a sticker on my, on my wall in my office that said planning to make a plan is not a plan. And recognizing that leadership need to see more in terms of okay, what's, what are the projects and what are the expected outcomes of those? And then how do you track them? How do you measure them? And how do you report upon them so that you're, so that you're, um, you're, you're consistently providing this value feedback. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge thing that I think I recognized in myself as, um, you know, I always had this conversation with me as, oh my God, you've done this. This is great. You've achieved this, you, all the, that success in that. But the question was, how did you how did you even get that done? Yeah. Because nobody knew because my plan was in my head and it was never out there and there was never then a way to track and measure, you know, what that looked like. And I think that was a big kind of change in me from that five to two years was to say, okay, I need to grow up. Like I need to mature in terms of how I demonstrate the value. And that's been a, a huge learning curve for me over those kind of three years to be able to do that. So that was a, that was a huge one. Yeah. There's a, like that kind of like show your work when you do yeah. a, a math assignment. hundred percent. Yeah. Which I used to hate by the way. Totally. And well, and yeah. when, when we first met, it's like, without a doubt, you would crush things. You get things totally done. Yeah. But people only knew about the results with their, which they're stoked on. I yes. didn't see all the things that you did to make it happen, to get yeah. there. And that whole idea of like your business expertise. Yes. Right. They just see an HR leader getting that thing done that they wanted and they're yeah. happy with that. But yeah. like, they didn't understand all of the moves and how you had to do that, the strategy involved. That's it. And uh, the thing I'd encourage people to think about here, this isn't like holding up, like, look how amazing I am. Like, it's not like no. boastful. It's about demonstrating the deep capabilities you have to make something happen so they can yeah. give you bigger projects, put more trust in you and, and give you that or so that you can take that seat at the table and hold it. And, and you just nailed it. Trust mm -hmm. like that. That's a huge piece of it. And I think that to get that seat at the table, you do need to be a trusted advisor. And mm -hmm. you, you talk about this with oh, cadence, no, right? All totally. the time. And, but, but that, that term cannot be underestimated because unless you've built that trust and that trust will only come through credibility, mm -hmm. it'll come through repeated demonstration of, of your skills and experience. Mm -hmm. And unless you're doing that on a regular basis and you're telling people about that, you're not going to build that trust. Totally. So, you know, having to build that trust was something that you do need to demonstrate. And as you say, it's not about 
you know, fanfare, hey, look at me and how wonderful I am. And it's usually the team, it's not, you know, but it's it's really about saying, okay, here's the critical thinking, here's the decision making, here's what we tried that didn't work, here's what we tried that then did work, here's how we shifted or adjusted, or here's why we needed that extra budget. Or like you have to show all of those pieces along the way in order to be able to build that credibility and that trust, which which really counts. Totally. Um I used to have this way of going about things when I was younger career, which is like, I would just outwork my competition. Yes. And, and I, I had to, like, I, um, I worked in this one workplace for, for quite a while where it was like, the decision-making was so wild. Like you just basically were like, okay, this whole place is just kind of held together by bubble gum. And like, I know that I have to just deliver results, yeah. but if I, if I try, try and talk through too many of the results, they don't trust me enough. So if I'm like, hey, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, they would just poke holes in it or be like, that's not mm. going to work. So actually, I just took everything underground and just like outworked and worked crazy hours and did all this stuff. And like kind of modern thinking from a business perspective, people might be like, well, you shouldn't have to do that. Well, no, I, I shouldn't have to do that. But it's what I had to do if I wanted to be successful yeah. at that job. And there was all sorts of benefits, but there's all sorts of like terrible stuff. Like it was mm. not not good. But I did get to a point where I started having big results and the, the leadership at the time were like, huh, wow, you really, really, you know, did, you proved us wrong, basically. How did you do it? And from that point forward, I was like, this is how I did it. And I explained it. But after that, they were super interested in hearing how I did things. Mm. And my ability that I learned, like that I had to develop was talking about how I would do things and what the plan was. I had to earn that space. But once I had that space, there was like a, an audience that was willing to listen to it. And it's, it's really what set me up to do cadence, yeah. like figuring out how to get it done in the background and just outwork the competition. But then also to like be able to show like, oh, no, I actually am a good business person and I understand strategy and how to do these things that not only set me up to do cadence, it set me up to like change my whole life and like kind of putting my yeah. hands on the, on the, I, I'm doing handlebars cause you ride motorcycles. <laughs> I'll put my hands on the handlebars that that was a big game changer, but okay. Let's talk about two years to now. Cause I saw a big shift in you, let's say five years ago to two years ago, huge yeah. shift. A lot of that though, I, I agree with you. It's like, even how you speak is so much different. Like mm. you're just like so much more confident and never that you were shrink like some kind of shrinking <laughs> from confidence but i'd yeah. say it's um focused confidence <clears throat> rather yep. than than big confidence like you know that mm. big presence now it's much more like seated confidence that's based in like a senior leader who can handle it mm. the way you talk about things is different but what about two years to now? Because I'd say there's even a bigger change from two years ago to now. Yeah, it's the the last two years, two and a half years probably has been um, huge from a from a career development perspective. And I mean, there's a bunch of things that happened, and it was almost a perfect storm. You couldn't you couldn't write it. So <clears throat> I figured out that I wanted to do my executive MBA mm -hmm. because as I was getting to that kind of senior leadership space, I needed to know what other leaders were thinking and what they were doing in their various departments. And by getting a more broader understanding of how business works was really important to me so that I could come to the table and not know what they do, but be able to ask the right questions, um, ask smart questions to get the answers back. And I didn't know what the questions were, so I needed to figure out that piece of it. So some development in that area was, was, was you know, for me, a kind of a, a, a piece of groundwork that I needed to do. So... <clears throat> 2019, I'm guessing it, yeah, 2019, like COVID eats years, right? 2019, I started my EMBA in the September. Then um, very quickly, my boss, who we both know and love, left. 
Um, and I was, I was put up for, um, interim head of HR at my, at my last company. And then, um, COVID hit and the world changed. Yeah. And with, with those three things all coming together at a really, really quick space of time, that what followed over the course of probably the next 12 to 18 months was possibly one of the hardest times in my career ever. Mm. It was that realization that, um, I'd got to the level where, there weren't that many people above me that were going to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. COVID meant that nobody knew what to do. And, um, you know, I was still trying to figure out, you know, what everybody else was doing. And so those kind of next 12 to 18 months were huge. And, you know, some days were literally just getting through. And some days were like these amazing eureka moments of, okay, we figured this shit out. Like mm -hmm. we got, we got, we got something here. And, and then trying to kind of bring along with me a group of, 75, 80 people in my team that were scared, anxious, worried, um, you know, so many different emotions going on was, was another big piece of it. And so there were so many learning opportunities during those kind of 12, 18 months. And, you know, coming out the end of it, I literally felt like, okay, it didn't break me. Like whatever comes next, I'll figure it out. I got this. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. And I think that that, it brought so many learning opportunities, so many opportunities to interact with people that I probably wouldn't have done prior, um, opportunities to work with new leaders that I, I hadn't had the opportunity to work with, that I like, that I learned things from and hope, you know, learned from me a little bit. And just being able to kind of immerse myself in that, in that crazy world was, was something that I think from an experience perspective was so incredibly valued to my, valuable to my development. Mm even though it was really fucking hard. <laughs> like it, it was such wild timing. Cause like wild. you got the big chair, like you yeah. got the big chair, right? There's only one other role in your previous organization that you yeah. could have gone to, which would have been higher. Yep. So you've got the big chair pandemic hits. Yes. Like how did you get through that? There was some, there was some tough days. There was a, there was, it was really long hours, especially in the first part, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, working from East coast to West coast across the U S mm -hmm. when nobody knew what was happening and nobody knew what was doing. And, and the regulate, the guidelines and rules were changing literally every day. Yeah. Um, you know, there was some 16, 18 hour days, like consistently for, for a period of time as we tried to kind of figure a lot of that out. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was super tough, but it built a whole new level of resilience in me that I didn't, I didn't know I had, I didn't know I needed but I, I didn't know that I had. I've always felt that I've been pretty resilient around things. I, you know, I wouldn't say like that kind of, you know, toxic positivity, but certainly I can, I'm a glass half full, look for the silver lining type of person. Um, but sometimes that kind of reality check around resilience was, was huge. Um, but just having people around me that were, um, people contributed in different ways. Like it, regardless of what level you were in the organization from a work perspective, um, people contributed in different ways to kind of helping keep that sanity, that reality check, as well as kind of that grounding that I think was super important. Um, but then, you know, really special people in my life as well, you know, friends and family that, you know, were there to check in and, um, and help out. And, you know, there's the, and I think that the other thing that, that happened as well was there was a shift with so many people in terms of empathy, like so, so many leaders 
believed that they had to show up with a professional facade on day in, day out prior to COVID. Then COVID happened and everybody had crazy stuff going on, not just at work, but in their personal lives. And that, that there was a blur, there was a merge between the two. And leaders found that showing up with the professional facade was no longer gonna cut it, was no longer good enough. And so it was really, really interesting to see how their mindset shifted in terms of how they dealt with people around them, with me, with each other. And that was actually something that I think is a huge benefit that's come out of COVID is that ability for, for leaders to feel like they can let that facade down and show up more authentically with more empathy. Um, and that I think really helped as well. It took a, took a few months for people to get there, but once it did, it was, it was almost palpable, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And again, like, you know, like when I make this commentary, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, like condescending, like patting you on like, Oh, good work. <laughs> I, I just say that I, I've been a very privileged scenario where I've got to watch your, uh, as you ascend in your career and the changes. And it's been really dramatic. And I actually want to hit on resiliency because mm. you're, you're what I'd say. And I mean, this, I, I hope is you take this as a huge compliment. You're like a tough person. Yes. Um, and when I say tough, you know, I guess the thing, maybe we think the traditional idea of tough is being like, I'm tough. <laughs> well, what I mean more is like, you're very, um, you're very open to different ideas and you're very convinced of your own ideas. So you're, you're totally, will have a middle ground with people and talk about ideas, but you're not going to be dismissed, bullied, shut no. down. Um, you're not going to have people diminish you or force you to take a back chair. It's just, you're not going to do that. No. So, but let's talk about resilience. Some resilience is stuff that you just kind of, you know, I guess we could say like what came first, chicken or the egg, right? Like, you know, it's yeah. like, is it a learned thing, something you were born with? You definitely came up with an amount of resilience and yeah. you certainly developed resili resilience. But let's talk about your roles because you've been in different organizations. I would imagine some of them have been more like, oh, HR is like central or business. They've got a seat at the table. And some probably have been less that. Mm. So in your various jobs, what role has resilience played in terms of like really, because I keep saying taking that seat and I believe people should take that seat mm -hmm. when it comes to like to HR, what role is uh, taking that seat and holding it? Um, what role has resilience played in that? I think it's huge, actually. I think <clears throat> a, a big part, each step in your career, there's a new level of resilience. And I think that um, in terms of kind of taking that seat I, you know, you know, I had to fight for it a little bit as well. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I was put in the, I, I was given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. It was mine to lose, mm -hmm. um, which was amazing to have that opportunity. And, um, but then, you know, there, there was a whole search process around it, um, as they should have done. I, as somebody who grew up in recruitment, I would have advised them to do exactly that. Um, but I, I did have to demonstrate, you know, my, um, my, my ability to fit within the, the, the vision they had for that role. And, you know, I was again, coming at it from a non-traditional way. Mm -hmm. And so building up the resilience was, was a huge part of it. But part of that resilience is, is also about building relationships mm -hmm. with those people that, you know, you don't always have to be tough with. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it comes down to that kind of trust and credibility when you get a relationship with somebody that is, um, and you'll probably know who I'm referring to, but typically, uh, had, had been typically viewed as being the toughest person to deal with. Mm -hmm. And 
you're able to build a relationship with that person where their toughness breaks down. Mm. It enables your toughness to break down and you can have more kind of vulnerable and genuine and authentic conversations. Mm. And when, when you get to that stage, that resilience piece is not always as essential, but it gets you to that point. Mm. And I think that by, by kind of meshing the resilience piece with the relationship building piece, if you can do the both together, there's a real opportunity for you to not have to rely on just one or the other. You've, you've got both. But I think, um, you know, it's it's definitely as well from an HR, thinking about it from the HR perspective, the big piece around resilience, a lot of it comes down to the, the kind of profit cost center that you were talking about, like how much budget are you spending? How much money are you spending? Why is it, why, why do you need this cost? Why, why do you need to invest in that? What, like, because it is seen at the very highest level within certain organizations as being a cost center, not a profit center, mm -hmm. even though the work that you're doing is generating profit through the development of the people that are selling <laughs> the product or service. <laughs> It's the most insane it's way of looking at it. The most insane way, exactly. So one of one of my kind of OKRs and kind of goals in that role was to really um, help my team first, but then kind of permeate through the organization to demonstrate that HR was a profit center, not a cost center. Um, but anyway, but but the resilience that comes from having to day in, day out, defend and justify your position around why should you invest X number of dollars in these particular programs or people or initiatives or whatever, that was huge. I, I, I'm just going to say outside of your actual product, nothing is more of a profit center than HR. Right. Like <laughs> people would be like, well, what about sales or what about development? It's like, yeah, but none of those people, unless your product develops itself right. and sells itself. Sure. Like- because without the HR team, you wouldn't have talent to even fill yes. those spots. You wouldn't have recruiting. You wouldn't yeah. have any of those things. You'd have no structure. You'd have no workflow. No. <laughs> like calling HR a cost center is the most insane way of looking at it. And it's it also is. like, and not that I'm anti-capitalist. I'm just saying like, that's more of a, like, I understand yeah. how it's structured from a capitalist perspective, but it's an insane way of looking at it. Totally. Like it should be, it's kind of like how teachers are chronically underpaid. Yes. It's like, that's the most insane group. It's the most group. valuable job. Yeah, it's like literally the <laughs> yes. most valuable job. They should be the highest paid people. Yeah. But anyways, that's, yep. that's a whole societal thing. All right. <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to quote a friend of mine uh, named Stephen St. Germain. And he, uh, to quote him, he said, some people take it way too far. Some people not far enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm using that quote to talk about progressive changes within business. Yeah. So we're at a time now where it's like leading up to the pandemic as well. But during the pandemic, we saw this like crisis level conversations mm -hmm. about race around uh, yeah. representation within the workforce um, where we can, I, I can very comfortably say, um, there's been a lot of good conversation around it. But mm -hmm. like, if I look at the workforce and I talk about like representation, I'm pretty comfortably say like, we got a long way to go. Still a long way to go. Um, we're also in a month where every company is changing their yes. you know, thing to be like, you know, the, the pride flag and all that. Yeah. That's cool. Like, I, I'm glad to see that. But yeah. we got a lot of long way to go. But within the workforce, we have people who say, this has all gone too far. Mm -hmm. And then we have a lot of people <laughs> saying, it's not far enough. Yeah. As an HR leader, how do you balance that? It's really hard. It's really hard because it's, it's <clears throat> first of all, you have to be able to differentiate your own personal views mm -hmm. with, um, with an organizational perspective too. So there's, there's a balance that you have to 
you have to kind of find, and it's it's an impossible balance to find actually, yeah. but you have to try and keep that perspective because I often had to remember that um, my personal views aside, society is still catching up in many ways um, and other parts of society is still way ahead. Yeah. And so, you know, as an individual who had a lot of influence and has a lot of influence over those kind of topics and those kind of changes in organizations, um, it was very important to always just kind of try and ground myself in the fact that whatever my own personal opinions are um, and however progressive I might be is, is, is there still needs to be balanced with others who are still taking the first step on that journey even. Yeah, yeah. And by alienating them is not the best way to, to totally. make change, right? Totally. So, so there was always that kind of piece of it. Um, <clears throat> but I have to say that probably, to flip that to the other extreme, probably one of, talking about resilience as well, but probably one of the toughest conversations um, I had to have at one point was about we're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. And genuinely genuinely feeling you know very convicted in my stance on this mm-hmm. and wanting to push the envelope further um and finding obstacles and challenges and resistance and um you know negativity around that kind of move forward when i i knew it was the right thing i was trying to stay grounded in being able to take all perspectives into account but still knowing that we needed to push further and we weren't doing enough and and finding so many of those kind of blockages being put up in front of me in order to be able to achieve just even you know the next step in the progress that I needed to make for the organization and that was that was really hard because that's something that as an individual you feel passionate about it's a very emotional topic it's very sensitive and not feeling the the level of support and encouragement and enthusiasm that you would have expected can be really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, yeah, those, but having, being able to have the conversations in the first place is is a step forward for a lot of companies. Yes. And so that's that's kind of the first piece. And then it's really about, you know, continuing that developing educational and awareness mm-hmm. in, in terms of what's not just right for the organization, but what the people are telling you that they need from the organization mm-hmm. and being able to articulate that in a way that builds its own business case, but that it's, it's really hard. It, it is super hard. And, you know, of the HR leaders, again, I, I kind of laugh when we talk about like profit center versus cost center. And also like the, who has to manage more nuances than HR leaders, mm-hmm. like the intensity. So I, get, I go back to that quote. It's like some people take it way too far. Some people, some not far enough. I have a kind of a, a privileged role when I work with organizations because you know, people have one-to-one conversations with me that are confidential, mm. largely confidential. And I can hear from one person, I, hey, this has all gone too far. Mm-hmm. All of this diversity inclusion stuff has gone too far. Critical race theory has gone too far. Like whatever whatever thing they're saying. Yep. And they can say that to me because we're having an open conversation and it's my job to help work with them mm. and not convince them one way or another, but for so they have a space where they can air their feelings and then we can talk about their leadership and, how, and, and where we can go with things. Yeah. So in one conversation, I can have that with one person. And then my next conversation, my next hour of the day is with someone in the exact same business. They yeah. literally work in the exact same company who are saying, 
oh, we haven't gone far enough. Mm-hmm. Um, our work with uh, diversity and inclusion is not at all at all far uh, enough. Our work with uh, you know something again, I'll just pull a critical race theory or or any whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's not far enough. These could be the same people. They might even work in the same business unit. They might even be at the same level of our organization, and they're both saying the opposites of each other. Yep. Again, I can then go on and be like, well, you know, here's my recommendations <laughs> to the company, and then on to my next assignment. Yeah. I always. When I think of organizations of any size, but especially organizations of the size of the ones that you've you've been leading, I'm sure, huge organizations, that balance mm. of how do we do the right thing, it sounds nightmarish to come up with. Like, yeah. how do you carry that weight? It's it is tough. I think that there's there's a, there's a point though where you say um, for those who saying we've gone too far, mm-hmm. I'm going to stop listening. Like I can't, I can't carry that mm-hmm. when I know deep down that the right thing to do is to push further mm-hmm. and you've got that level of negativity saying we've gone too far. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable for me. This isn't the company I joined. This isn't what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. At some point you have to say enough. Mm-hmm. Like I can't carry that because it's, it's actually wrong. Yeah. And we need to push this forward because actually the vast majority of people do want us to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they don't even know what it is that we need to do because they've not educated themselves to, to the level mm-hmm. that they need to, to know what needs to be done. But they feel that, that we could do more. or They feel that they want to work in an environment mm-hmm. that's better. And so even if you are coming to the table with the most privilege, um, whatever that represents, most people still want to work in an organization that even if it doesn't impact them, they want to work in an organization that cares about the people it's going to impact. So, you know, you can have conversations around, I'm I'm at a point in my life where, you know, we're talking about things like fertility treatments as benefits. Mm -hmm. Like that's not going to impact me, Mm -hmm. like not at my age, but Mm -hmm. it's going to, I want to work for a company that cares about that Mm -hmm. and that, that is going to provide that and develop that for its employees. And so it comes to the point where you, you do have to shut down the necessity to listen to that level of negativity because it's just wrong. That's not how society is changing. That's not how society is developing. And so I'm sorry, but that is antiquated thinking and no longer part of my decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to bring this to a, like deepen this a little bit further. And something I made a joke about earlier, it's like the time of the year where all the companies change their logo to the, to the pride flag. And uh, mm-hmm. a friend of mine um, posted something on their Instagram making fun of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sent the little like smiley face, laughing, smiling <laughs> face. And then I thought about it afterwards. I'm like, do I think that's funny? You know, like <laughs> due to the nature of where I'm, the kind of work that I do, it's like I both am super hopeful, but also cynical. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm hopeful because I've seen leaders like you and leaders like other incredible leaders leading change in a way that I think is like also super thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And it's not just inclusive, it's not just trying to create and create uh, inclusivity of like representation, but it is also saying like, hey, if you disagree, let's talk about it. Let's figure mm-hmm. it out. So I'm hopeful in that way, but I'm also a bit like cynical. Um, because I have also worked at enough senior levels where I can see what's kind of like like, oh, yeah, let's just put that stuff up because we're supposed to. And then, like, let's just act however we want to act in the background. So I can see both. Mm-hmm. But after I had sent that over to my friend, I really thought about it. And I thought a lot about how, like, 
people roll their eyes now at like, okay, you know, it's pride month. Of course, all these corporations are going to do that. But wait a second. There's actually a ton of people who work in all those companies who feel good that their company's doing that. Yeah. And like, take it away from like profit margins and like the, you know, like pick whatever cartoonish like billionaire you want to take it away from all those. Just think of the normal rank and file worker day to day. They probably feel really good that their company is doing that. And in fact, a company isn't necessarily the CEO or or any of like kind of the top people. A company is the vast majority of the company are other people who have all yeah. different beliefs. And probably the vast majority of those people are feel really good that flag is is part of their um, uh, logo or at least they're neutral on it. Like, oh, yeah, like that's something that should happen. Yeah. But they're not against it and they're not rolling their eyes at it. They'd probably feel bad if their company didn't do that. Yeah. I want to get your thoughts on that, though. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think there is definitely a piece of that, and <clears throat> this is the evolution piece that I think is is so interesting, because from from my experience and conversations that I've had, some of those who are more highly impacted mm-hmm. um, by these uh, celebrations mm-hmm. throughout the year <clears throat> um, because they identify with whatever group we're, we're celebra- celebrating. Um, and some of those that are more kind of maybe highly educated, self-educated or educated around those particular topics w- would probably say that we're past that now. Yeah. But there's so many people that are still catching up mm-hmm. and that this is actually a big step in being able to feel like you as a, as a small cog in a big wheel it, are being inclusive. Like if you have the opportunity to update your banner on your LinkedIn page, or you have the opportunity to update your auto signature with a rainbow, mm-hmm. like that for a lot of people is one of their first steps to actually being um, actively inclusive, like proactively inclusive around something. Mm-hmm. And so those people are still catching up. And so there's this huge spectrum <clears throat> of experience and knowledge mm-hmm. and they're coming, they, they, you know, they're getting there. And so there is that ability um, through these types of events to be able to recognize how far people have come and yet how far we still need to go. And it is a really great opportunity as a reminder and an opportunity to share learnings and education and awareness around certain topics that for the rest of the year don't come up in day-to-day conversation. Mm-hmm. So there is value in it for sure, but there will come a point where from an evolution perspective, we'll move past that and and that should, and people say, well, it shouldn't be necessary. Well, of course it shouldn't be necessary, but we're still bringing people on this journey. You've got to give some people a little bit more time to catch up yeah. um, because they haven't had the same opportunities for immersion, learning, development in these spaces. And for them to be able to feel like they can show up and add a rainbow to their auto signature might be a really big deal. Huge deal. And I'm going to push on something that I myself have kind of talked trash on. And and I'm really, I want to say like, I'm, I've put a lot of thought into it. It's like, well, these companies are just doing it to, to make money. And Mm -hmm. like, just, and it's like, actually in a way think that's good. And what I mean by that is that like 40 years ago, a company wouldn't outwardly be chasing the patronage of people from the LGBTQ plus community. They actually wouldn't have done that. No. 20 years ago, companies would have done it, but in subtle ways. We're in a time now where it's like, well, of course we're going to do that. Proud. Yeah, we want the patronage of those people. And we want people from that community to be a part of our company because we want the best and brightest. And that means we have to cast the widest net. For me, that's like... Well, 
if companies are doing it because they're literally chasing money, that means the recognition of communities of uh, being like, oh, we, yeah, they have that. That's essentially saying these are communities who have increasing power and representation in mm. general society. And that might be a kind of a capitalistic way of being it, but we live in a capitalistic society and that's the way our economy works. Well, you could go super deep here on the ends justifies the means conversation as well, right? From a psychological, from a philosophical perspective. And <clears throat> In in some in some cases it does. Mm -hmm. Like if the end justifies the means, then you know sometimes that's okay. It's not it's not a clear cut. The, these kinds of things are never clear cut. Mm -hmm. It's never well. It's it, it's not binary. It's not like one or two. Yeah. It's th there's nuance right across the spectrum. Totally. And you've got to live with that nuance. Well, and like just like how forty years ago companies didn't do that because it would be prohibitive to, mm -hmm. to them make, to doing well financially. Now, not doing it is prohibitive. That's yeah. like an indicator of a huge societal change. I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and I understand the kind of me cynical because I have, I literally on this podcast have been like, oh, your companies doing that. Now I'm like, actually, that's pretty dope that companies have to do that. Like, it's like yeah. expected at this point. That's cool. Yeah, yeah it is. And I think um, <clears throat> it, it's kind of interesting because I think for for those that have have been in the DEI space for, for, for many years, that has been the primary business case argument to leadership of why they should. Because, you know, taking it's the right thing to do out of the equation again, which I, I hate doing because I'm a big advocate of doing the right thing. But if, let's just take that out of the equation. In order to be able to influence the decisions of leadership within organizations to put resources, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's people behind certain initiatives, you have to bring a business case. And so you've got to be smart about, you know, hitting the, the, the right, um, the right notes when you're, when you're building that business case in order for people to get behind it and rally behind it. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking about spending money on DE and I and, and earning the, the dollars, um, usually back in the UK, you know, way, way ago, it used to be the pink pound was the first way of saying, okay, well, we want women to buy things too. Like it's an important demographic. And that was your kind of 40 years ago, but now you're talking about, you know, your, your rainbow dollar and all of these kind of things in order to demonstrate that there's, there's, um, a business case there. you're demonstrating that they can, they can build revenue off it, that yeah. there's profitability in it. But people that have been working in the DNI space for years have been saying this all along. Just gradually people are getting on board. The, that voice is getting louder and people are starting to listen. And now it's switched to the fact that, well, if you don't do it, you're actually going to lose money. Totally. And you could actually get shut down. Well, isn't that like, doesn't say so much about where we're at yeah. in society. So for anyone who's cynical about it, myself included, I, I hope that's something to think about because again, I just had this moment. I know it sounds crazy on Instagram where I was like, do I think that's that funny? <laughs> I do, but I actually think it's, it's a pretty, pretty cool thing. It can go too far. It can go too far, though. It it can go too far because sure. there there the, there are definitely not not all of those attempts and initiatives are um, come from a good place. Well, I I mean the one that I was laughing about on a podcast a while ago was you see that you saw that Pepsi commercial with oh, yes. uh, Kendall was it Kendall Jenner yeah yeah that's like too far like, too far and also it's just like yeah. shameless like you're there's like oh, super important awkward terrible right awkward. Yeah. Whoever greenlit that, I hope you've reconsidered. I know. Yes, hundred percent. There, there were many, many examples like that. That, um, yeah, went too far, took it the wrong way, or 
it was it was shameless and that's and that's not appreciated okay let's talk about doing the right thing you know i have people on this podcast a lot and we talk about doing the right thing it's like oh you got to do the right thing and you know i was actually i was thinking about some of our episodes where this doing the right thing is such a, a theme and i love it it's mm. great mm. And also, we're not always the shot callers, the decision makers, the yeah. people with the budget or the people at the last call. And in fact, even at super senior levels, people work for leaders or businesses who will choose to not do the right thing once or many, 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 many multiple times. Mm. And it could be about a lot of things or it could be around one topic repeatedly. So I know you as a senior leader, uh, you must have experienced some version of this throughout all of your career. Yep. Um, first of all, I'm interested in, let's start with adv what advice you'd have for professionals when they're in a situation where their boss or their company is choosing, despite having all the data, mm -hmm. to not do the right thing. So what advice would you have? I think there's there's multiple layers of advice to this. <clears throat> first of all, like it, it's gut-wrenching. Mm -hmm. and, and so kind of taking a moment to just kind of recognize how you personally feel about it. Um, because it can almost feel like a personal attack. If you're the one that's trying to influence that decision um, and you've brought to the table the right level of data, information, statistics, knowledge, experience, whatever it might be, to, to try and influence the, the doing of the right thing. And regardless and in spite of that, it goes it goes against you. That, that can be really emotionally challenging. <clears throat> So I think just a moment to process that is is important. Um, but then there's there's also, you know, at what level are you at in your career and in the organization? Um, you know, there's there's certain times where it's appropriate to say, well, actually, my 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 advice is just run. <laughs> like leave. Yeah. Because there's only so much that you're able to influence, and there's only so much time and attention and heartbreak that you can put into that, um, where ultimately you're not gonna have uh, an influence on the outcome and having to live with the results of, of the decision that went against what is the right thing can be damaging to your own career, health, mental well-being, all of those things. And so there's, there's, there's an, a piece of advice for some people that says you should get out and go and find somewhere where you do feel like your values are aligned and you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you're fully kind of lined up and in agreement with how you, how you, work through some of these things. <clears throat> but then, you know, on the other level, you know, how much influence do you have? And should then you stay to be able to next time make make that case? Or, <clears throat> you know, you, you feel, I know that I've been in situations where I felt that I've got a, a certain level of responsibility for those around me that the right thing gets done. And, um, I'm not ashamed to admit that it's, it's ranged from everything from, you know, throwing the entire data book at, at a problem all the way through to having a meltdown and a tantrum because it didn't go the right way. Yeah. And sometimes the, the, it got to that point where it's like, well, if this is the only way you're going to listen to me is for me to make a, a complete fuss about something, which isn't my natural style, but I'm, do you know, what, I'm gonna, for the right thing, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself out there. Um, then, you know, there's a certain point where you stay and you fight and you have that kind of sense of responsibility for others. Um, but also recognizing that when you are not the decision maker and you are the influencer, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. 
And all of that will be a learning opportunity for the next time, whether it's at the same company or a different company, because it will happen again. And so what did you learn from that? What went well? What didn't go well? What could you have done differently? How else might you have approached it? Who else could you have included in that decision-making process that could have influenced all of those different factors? There's learning opportunities. So taking just the time just to download all of that understand it and be prepared for the next time, but especially in HR and many, many other roles, you will come up against this again. It'll be a different topic. It'll be a different set of people, but the situation of, okay, I need to convince these people to do the right thing will come back again and again and again. Yeah. Um, well, adding to that. So if we think of HR and I would, I would take HR and I would, this might seem like an odd connection, but I also think of something like social services mm. or people who are really dedicated to creating the right kinds of conditions for people mm. within groups of those people. There's like altruistic people. Like they care about, they care about helping other people. Yeah. There can be a bit of a give until gone mentality. Yeah. Which sounds kind of heroic, mm -hmm. but at some point it's gone. Yeah. And so if you say give until gone, gone, I think it's the worst model. And when I was working in the social, social services, I just saw, super talented therapists, super talented frontline workers, super talented uh, people from different uh, levels and organizations go through an absolute grinder. Mm. And then it, one day there was something gone. And it wasn't because the social services are bad because they're certainly not. It's that they are they they have kind of traditionally not had strong leadership because their leadership has often been picked on whoever is the last person standing. Like, mm. oh, you're, you're the last, okay, yeah. you're, you're the leader. <laughs> They're not great leaders. They're not bad people, but they're yeah. not great leaders because they've been trained in the art of leadership. Yeah. They, they've very likely came up in a system that just grinds people down over time, and people quit or have mental health events mm. that pull them out. I see a lot of the same thing in in HR groups where it's like people who are very altruistic. They want to create change, but they have a little of that give until gone type mm. attitude. I just want to encourage people that you shouldn't give until gone because yeah. when you it's get too to late, the, yeah, it's too late. Gone yeah. is too late. Yep. So. What are any any thoughts on how you can be a, uh, a HR person who takes care of themselves while also pushing <laughs> for the right kinds of change? Yeah, this is huge, and it's and I think this has been a real learning for me as well, um, because I think I was one of those give until gone people mm -hmm. um, some years ago, <clears throat> but um, I think there's been definitely in the last kind of three or four years a, a kind of a realization that that's 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 not healthy. I can't be there for my team if if I'm gone. Yeah. I can't be there for my family. I can't prioritize the things in my life that are important. Um, I mean, it's super interesting that you kind of talk about the social work analogy as well. At, at Ada, we've got two social workers and staff, mm. which is incredible. Yeah. Like I've never worked for a company where I've heard of this ever before, mm. where you're in a corporation and you know we're, we're 500 people scale up size, but even so, but we have two social workers on staff, mm. and the and they're there to, to basically look after the um, physical and mental well-being of all of our people, yeah, yeah. which is incredible. And so you can book to have a one-to-one -one confidential conversation, but the amount of themes that bubble up then from those individuals that are hearing really, really how it is, mm -hmm. like they're the only two people in our organization that really know how it is because they hear it right at, at that ground level. The themes that bubble up means that they do have the ability to influence. So if something's getting really bad or we are doing the wrong thing mm -hmm. they're going to hear about it it gets bubbled up we're able to do something about it and our leadership is open to doing something about it which is incredible so that that kind of interaction between hr and and, and social work shouldn't be 
oh, this might be a strange analogy. It should be, no, no, this is exactly where they, they, they kind of interlink. It's, it's super interesting, I find. Um, but I think that, you know, from a, from a self-care perspective, you do have to be able to compartmentalize a little bit, like what is work and what is person, like who's Keris, the HR leader and who's Keris, the wife, mother, friend, you know, all of those kind of things and be able to compartmentalize a little bit, the ability to leave the big issues in the work sphere and be able to take enough time and do enough of the things that bring you joy outside of work to the fore that enable you to rest, recharge, repair, get your, your, your kind of thinking back on track and be able to come back again for another, for another day because there will be other battles, there will be other ob obstacles to overcome. And if you're constantly worn down by those that are happening, it gets harder and harder and harder to come back and, and, and be present enough to be able to be influential. Heck yeah. I, I completely agree with you. So like we hear a lot about like that. I, in the years we've seen and in, in heard increasing conversations on around emotional labor, yeah. which is, I just say a topic is poorly understood by most people. Yes. It's like, you know, an Instagram thing or whatever yeah, Twitter yeah. thing. It's like, yeah, like literally I, I don't fault people for doing it, but it becomes like such a talking point. Like, well, you know, one group is doing more of the emotional labor. So first of all, everyone, emotional labor is a absolutely normal phenomenon. It's part of every single day, you know, like, if your kid spills a full a cup of juice on your brand new carpet, you're experiencing emotional labor because yeah. you're restraining your reaction so that the next right thing can happen. Um, but emotional labor is like a real deal thing. Mm -hmm. And marginalized groups, of course, experience a higher amount of emotional labor day to day. Yeah. And also people who have jobs that are, are very people heavy, that have a lot mm -hmm. of, of um, touch points with how, creating change. They are uh, very often more on the front line of getting burnt out because mm. they carry much more uh, emotional labor day to day. With that in mind, I'm going to flip the script. I've asked you for a lot of advice for HR people. Mm. What about advice for business leaders who aren't HR professionals, who are in a business where HR is undervalued, marginalized, don't have a seat at the table? What's your advice there? Yeah, I, I, I would love for more business leaders to really think about how the how the people in their organization impact their ability to be successful because if they took the time and worked with enough people through the organization to be able to understand that i i genuinely believe they would do things differently mm -hmm. and i think that um it's it's so far down the list in any of the business books that they've read or the um you know the courses that they've done um that it's an, it's an afterthought. And I think that if they started there and said, okay, this business will only be successful based on the talent that we have within it. And what does that actually mean on a day-to-day -day basis? And how do I, as a leader, show up to ensure that we have the right talent doing the right things at the right time to make this organization successful and start to genuinely understand how people get motivated, how people um, become loyal, how people show up and give the 110%, the elusive 110%, like how people do, you know, bring their authentic selves to work and feel safe in contributing their talents and their skills and their knowledge, um, in an environment that's not going to knock them back or judge them 
and that those things are actually all ingredients to the overall success of the organization, if they actually stop to think about that for long enough and spend some time really digging into that as much as they do trying to understand where the next sale is going to come from, then I think that people would do things differently. When you've been in in businesses, and again, I I know you've worked in a diversity of businesses, so it's not that I'm identifying one or the other, but when you've worked in businesses that trumpet change or or good things, but then you see them act differently and you Mm -hmm. know they act differently, Mm -hmm. how have you maintained? You are someone that I believe is like, oh, I know, is super progressive. You're all about creating good, healthy change. You aren't a person who takes it too far. You are the person who's saying, hey, it's not far enough, but you have a good sense of how to get that proper balance here. And I know you have worked in businesses that are very good at kind of talking about like all of the stuff that we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. And then also perhaps uh, in the background are actually quite reticent to make the changes internally to make good on on the public face of what they're saying. Mm -hmm. How have you maintained in those times? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. I think that um, there are usually in an organization, there's usually a group of people that are pushing the needle, making change happen for the good um, and creating working environments that are healthy and positive for the large part. And you see you see the the benefits of that and you see that progress and you see that grow. And with each program or each initiative or, or, or each strategy, you see that you're getting closer and closer to, to that. And <clears throat> it feels good. And then there's a bad apple or a handful of bad apples that exist within most organizations. I won't say every, but most organizations th- whose own individual actions don't match up with the work that you're trying to do in order to create an environment that is healthy and positive and engaging and beneficial to the people that work there. Mm-hmm. And so then you get this <clears throat> you get this kind of conflict and this friction between what is happening that is adversary to what you're creating. And then it's up to leadership to be able to decide, okay, are we genuinely putting our money on us moving in this progressive growth-oriented developmental way as an organization for the positive or are we going to uh, turn and are we going to turn a blind eye to the negativity and um, the toxicity that is coming out of this small group that are doing these things that is in complete misalignment with what you're trying to create and those leaders often have either been um the protagonists of creating this this new way of going um or they've bought into it it's been brought to them and they've bought into it so they're already aligned that this is where we should go and then you've got this this nasty issue or issues happening on the side that is in complete conflict with that and so then it's a business leader's decision do you do you sweep this under the carpet for whatever reason or do you call it out? And I think that for so many years, um, in a lot of organizations, it's been easier for leadership to try and sit on the fence and have the two running concurrently. Because mm-hmm. if you upset this, it's gonna upset the organization. And if you upset this, it's also gonna upset the organization. Um, <clears throat> so 
you know, leaders have often sat on the fence and not felt that they've had either the courage to be able to come out and call it out and recognize that there may be a short-term loss for a long-term gain mm -hmm. and take the hit on getting rid of these people that are providing that toxic environment or shut down the behavior that is bringing that kind of toxic toxic environment because it's going to feel really painful. Yeah. Like it's ripping off the Band-Aid. It's going to hurt a lot mm -hmm. because they're either going to lose money or they'll lose other people or they'll be something bad from a reputational perspective or a brand perspective. Um, so it's hard to be able to do the hard thing when if you can just keep it under the covers or under the blanket a little bit longer, maybe nobody will notice and we can, you know, maybe they'll just leave of their own volition. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it takes a really courageous leader to recognize that whatever's happening over there that's, that's in contrary to what you're trying to create, the culture and the values and the environment you're trying to create, what is, what is happening there, if you're strong enough to shut it down, move it out, get rid of it, fire people if you have to, that actually the long-term benefit to the vast majority of people that work for you, your clients and customers are going to feel the benefits of that removal of that kind of bad apple, um, then they're going to see so much more, more positive um, benefits come back from it. But when that the whole time that you're you're seeing that that decision is not being made, it's really hard because you know you want to do the right thing, you want to encourage others to do the right thing, and you want to kind of be there for them. And so sometimes you're playing the medium to long game, and you're having to constantly revisit, reevaluate, reassess. Um, sometimes you get new leadership, and that can help because there's a different perspective and a way of thinking. They come in a little bit braver sometimes, or a little bit less complacent. Um, sometimes there's, you know, a shift in kind of cultural thinking. Sometimes there's an incident that happens that just kind of brings it to the fore and it flares up, and they forced into making a decision. Um, but yeah, talking about you know the resilience side of having to constantly be there to remind them that this decision needs to be made because the longer it stays on, the worse it's going to be for everybody involved, including the organization, and it, it needs to be shut down, um, is, is really hard. And it has a lot of emotional labor because you're living knowing that bad things are happening and you're still having to push for the progress and the positive and the change that you're trying to influence from a cultural perspective. Yeah. So that brings a lot, of, a lot of emotional labor and the need to be very, very resilient. Yeah. Um, would you mind if I give a counseling analogy to that? Yeah. A therapy analogy? Um, for mental health and addiction, there's a saying, um, uh, well, there's a, a philosophy about client work, which is if you think of a client's journey to sobriety or mm. to attaining the level of mental health that they, that they want, view it like a journey of a thousand miles. The biggest mistake a therapist can make is assuming they're the solution. And so that by working with you, you're going to take them to that thousand, the like mile 1000 mm. instead saying, Oh, I am not the solution at all here. And a lot of therapists will make these mistakes. Like I'll help that person get sober. I'll, mm. I'll help them do this and that really what a therapist does, a smart therapist, a strong therapist, a therapist who's brave and who trusts their client and, and trusts the process is that you look at it and say, I am likely here to help that person get from, let's say, mile 332 
to mile 689. And after that, they will not be it. At that, I have to just kind of let that work go. Mm. If you understand that you're not the solution to something, but you play a, a very important part in progress towards the solution, mm -hmm. then you're going to be able to be in the game. And what I was hearing about what you're saying is that like, you got to reassess, you've got to like, you know, like when I like when you said play, um, you got to play uh, midterm to like long term, mm -hmm. you've always got to be rethinking what's going on is an active process. So there's yeah. clients when I was a therapist that I worked with where I was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, if I think about a thousand miles, maybe they're like halfway there. I think I can get them to the finish line. I think I can get them over. It's like five sessions later. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like not even close. Like I have to really rethink my, my, um, how I'm approaching this from a therapeutic perspective. Yeah. And that idea of whatever giant change an organization is going to make, the organization is its own solution. Like, yeah the people in the organization are their own solution and you're just there to help facilitate it taking certain steps along the line. That's how I believe is a super important part of, of burnout. Don't view yourself as a solution, but just someone who's around facilitating progress towards yeah. the solution. How does that land with you? I, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great analogy actually. And I think that, um, it, it's, it's very much how HR operates in so much as, um, you know, quite often, you know, we're not the decision makers. We're, we're 90% of the time we're the influencers yes. and, and business leaders look to HR to bring both objectivity and subjectivity into the conversation to be able to make a decision around something. Mm -hmm. And so they'll look to, to HR leaders to bring forward, okay, well, what haven't I thought of? Like, tell me what I'm missing here. What, what do I need to consider when I'm making this decision? Mm -hmm. And, and so they look to us to bring that, that to the fore, but we're not going to be able to make the decision for them. Mm -hmm. And ultimately we have to rely on those leaders to make the decisions that they're going to make with the information that they have as much educated as they can be at that time. Yeah. And, you know, all you can, and if you don't get the right decision that you're looking for, don't give up. Like, you know, you've got to come back with, with something else yeah, and yeah. You, you've got to keep that topic current enough that it chips away and has them rethinking on a regular basis. You bring forward new pieces of evidence and I'm air quoting because it's, you know, you're, you're bringing forward, um, proof of why that person should make a different decision. Um, and you, you keep chipping away at it because ultimately it's about making progress yes. and you may or may not be be still there at that organization when they start making the right decisions, but you've influenced that piece of that progress towards making the right decision. Totally. It, it, I, I love what you just said there. It's about scaling what the progress is like, yeah. what is the progress I can think, I think I can do to help it get there. And then how am I going to spend my time? Yeah. How am I going to break that down into actionable steps? So like, if we think of something like racism or sexism mm -hmm. or, um, you know, any kind of any, any population has been marginalized. Our ability as individuals to straight up solve that mm -hmm. is very limited. Very. Yeah. But our ability to create all sorts of progress is immense. Yes. How we look at progress and then how do we scale it so that we can understand where we can spend our time and where we should spend our time. Not all actions are as valuable. And and we could also take it out of progressive work like that to even just like, how do you create like proper workflow in a company? How mm. do you how do you have the right kind of recruiting? Any yeah. of these things. If we, if we can avoid ourselves as viewing ourselves as a solution and instead be someone who creates uh, moments or long terms of progress, it mm -hmm. just helps you know where you can spend your time and have the most effect. Yeah. And also sometimes going back to the ther uh, therapeutic model, sometimes you get to be that person who 
see someone cross the thousand, yes. so, thousand the mile 1000. And I've had that in my career, both as a therapist mm -hmm. and, and doing this, where I'm like, I see someone achieve the thing they want to do. And it's yeah. like, hell yeah. But my role was never as the solution. My role was always about the progress. I was just lucky enough to be in the last 10 miles. Yeah. And that's really, really cool. But also because I could come in and properly assess where someone was at, I would know where to spend my time and how to push it. So it's about assessment, understanding what progress is, how close people are to that solution, and then scaling your your efforts around that. And, it, and it's all an iterative process. I'm a huge fan of iterative processes yeah. because I think that <clears throat> quite often the the mistake is, okay, I need to get to that one th mile 1,000. Yeah. That's my first milestone. Well, it's not. There's a thousand milestones before you get to <laughs> yes, that, right? Yeah. Literally a thousand milestones. And so if you think about it as, okay, well, that's the only one I'm going to satisfy with, mm. then you're missing an opportunity to celebrate progress at each mile. Yeah. And every time that there's a shift or a change or um, something positive happens, you know, you, you're building upon that. It's building, but it's Lego. Like you, you've got these pieces that you're adding on each time. And as you get closer to that mile 1000 and someone makes the right decision, um, you know, whether you were brick 300 or brick 600, yeah. that you've had an influence. And I think that as HR leaders, um, you, you're advocates for change. You're champions of change. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to bring a lot of those kind of communication skills, influencing skills, relationship building skills in order to be really good at advocating and championing for change because you're trying to influence something that's really hard for people. Yeah. Behavior. Yeah. To change behavior is really hard. Yes. Well, really hard. That So that brings me to something I, I think is important to talk about. So you and I are of a certain generation and uh, I don't want to say the right or the wrong of this, but we were we came up in a world where you had to be resilient in yeah. terms of that's what was expected of you in the workplace. You had to be resilient. It had to be tough. You had to be able to manage a certain amount of emotional labor or a lot of emotional labor. Yeah. You were expected to not challenge that or have an issue with it. You're expected to just come in and work hard hours, do the work. And if you want progress, that's your chosen path. Yeah. We now have generations who say, well, wait, why, why should it be like that? Yes. Awesome. I, I love that. Great. 100%. You're right. And we're still working with a diversity of people who come from all sorts of different backgrounds. They have come up in North America. They have come up yeah. with a certain system. The idea that you shouldn't have to experience emotional labor, totally agree. But also mm -hmm. it's like a normal part. It's just a normal part of psychology. Yeah. Or that you shouldn't have to be super resilient. Like, yes. Yes, I agree with all those things. But that's not real today or yeah. as real as we want it to be and it likely won't be as real as we want it to be for a long time so yeah. any advice to young professionals who'd say well yeah but i don't i shouldn't have to do that and you and i agree what advice do you have for people entering the work world or maybe like early career who who want to have to be a lot less resilient but they they're still in that space yeah i, I love i love this whole topic i'm fascinated by it because <clears throat> our parents generation it was harder for them way harder right? they had and, a job and, and stayed in it for 40 years 40 years yeah. can you imagine and you know they looked at us when we were starting out in the workforce thinking oh well they've got it easy and yet here we are sitting there saying that it was hard right and so each with each generation i think there's you know there's different um 
different light bulb moments. But I, I love the fact that this next generation is coming forward and saying, do you know what? I'm going to put up with that bullshit. Like that's no longer for me. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we should have to live like that. And I love that they're challenging that. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredible. And I think it's making it better for me too. Mm -hmm. Like as, as one of those people that, yeah, just worked really hard, long hours um, in the early days. And that was the only way of getting ahead because that was how, how you how your performance was measured yeah. was was very much like how many hours are you doing how hard are you working like how many calls did you make compared to the other like you know there's there's very different benchmarks today in terms of how we how we measure performance but i love that they're challenging it but at the same time if you take away adversity mm -hmm. you miss learning opportunities totally right totally. and so by by being completely shut off from any kind of hardship or adversity you miss the ability to be able to practice your resiliency muscle because that's important. It's not just something that you either have or you don't have. You have to practice it. To be resilient, you have to practice being resilient. You have to be thrown a curveball in order to be able to practice being resilient. And you'll you'll do it better or worse depending on what side of bed you get out of. So you need to be able to practice that. Um, and then failure is as you know is is one of the best learning opportunities 100%. so if you're not given the opportunity to fail or to do things wrong or to not have had the best support from your manager in that instance or the the technology that you're using is a bit antiquated or outdated or do you know what the only time this call can happen is at 6 a.m in the morning because you're dealing with somebody on the, the east coast or like if you don't get any of that adversity or hardship, you miss out on so much opportunity to learn. And I think that that is something that I would say for, for those kind of fighting for better working conditions, love it. But at the same time, don't, don't look for perfection because you will miss out on being able to fail and go through hard times, which builds resiliency. Yeah, I agree. And, and also something that I've been seeing, and, and you you might have seen this, or maybe you, you disagree. I think that the, you know, if we talk about the idea of like being progressive, I think the pendulum has swung quite significantly one way and now mm -hmm. it's starting to swing back. So yeah. we see companies like Netflix who, let's say a year ago, um, uh, people within Netflix were saying like, hey, we find some of the things that we're creating are problematic and we want to have more of a say of what gets greenlit internally. Mm. Now Netflix is actually saying, hey, we create a lot of content here. And if you are uncomfortable working on some of this content, it's totally understandable if you want to find somewhere else. So Netflix has actively said, we are not going to have internal, uh, like our larger internal population mm. govern if they're uncomfortable with the content, it's totally fine. They just don't have to work here. So that's actually a pretty significant shift. Yeah. We see someone like Elon Musk, and I, I'm I'm not an Elon Musk lover or hater. I'm relatively neutral, but saying no, everybody has to come back to work. Yeah, I think from my perspective, the pendulum has started to swing back the other way, and young professionals who maybe in their early career were like, "Heck yeah, I don't want this anymore, and I'm I'm not going to do it, or I don't think you need, need to do this. Uh, I don't I don't want this to to be resilient, or I don't want to be made uncomfortable." Or it's mm -hmm. like, "Oh, totally, that's great." And I kind of feel like it's swinging back the other way. Do you have mm. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think there is something to to be said about that. I think that um, I hope that organizations and leaders will look for the positive that's come out of this without feeling like there has to be extremes on mm. a spectrum yeah. and find some balance because <clears throat> because I think that and you know I had these conversations with people 
especially that kind of younger generation that's talking about, well, why haven't I been promoted yet? Why have, why am I not a director already? Why, why am I not a VP already? And, you know, having those conversations with people that I don't think anybody's ever had with them before about there's a business need and there's an, there's a, there's an individual need. Yes. And there needs to be some alignment between the two in order for the fireworks to go off. And if there's some misalignment there on whatever topic it is, whether it's I want this job or I want to work or I don't want to work on that particular product because I don't agree with it. Um, if there's misalignment there, then you need to find alignment another way. You could potentially influence internally or you might need to seek it externally. But there needs to be some balance there because businesses are there to generate revenue in order to be able to continue to grow and to scale. That's ultimately what they're there for. You hope that they're going to also add on to that. Let's do the right thing. Let's make sure that we're, you know, we have a, a you know, a solid purpose, vision, a vision, mission, values, et cetera, in terms of where we're going. Um, and, you know, most companies I think do, but ultimately there, there, there is a business need. Does the business need this thing to be, be true and an individual need? And you hope and, and, and aim for those two to align. Yeah. And when they don't, um, it's a challenge and, you know, th there's going to be disagreement and some people are going to have to look externally. Totally. Uh, you mind if I share something from my own career path? Mm. Um, I worked at a company that my experience at the company was quite toxic. It was just very, very negative. And I remember thinking, Hey, you know what? There's this cool potential here. We're going to change this mm. and dedicating years of my life to creating a better culture. And at one point I realized like, yeah, there's a better culture. But what I had to become to make that happen cost me. Mm -hmm. And I just was maybe the worst version of myself that I'd ever been in my life. Like I'd adopted attitudes or, or, or perspectives or things to do because essentially I had acclimatized to the environment and mm -hmm. the environment, I had found the environment to be quite toxic. And I, I wanted change to happen and the change did happen, but also it while the company became better, I became worse. Yes. And I was like, oh, this isn't worth the cost. Yeah. Being here is like, this is not the worth the cost. And I remember being like, I'm going to go back to who I was. And I just went back to who I was. And within a very short period of time, like maybe within a year, I was no longer at the company. And I realized something so valuable from that, which was sometimes the thing that you're want, you want to change comes at such a high price that you shouldn't be there. Yeah. It, it's too much of a high price. Yep. And that's okay. It's totally okay. It's okay. Flip it over. When I started Cadence, I had all these like progressive ideas about it's going to be this and that. And you know what? It is. It is that. I think that this is a super cool company to work with, uh, to work uh, to work for. I think we've built a, not think, we have built a super cool culture. I'm yeah. super proud of it. We've all built it together. You know, like our internal um, uh, surveys, all the work that we do is like comes up strong really strong results mm -hmm. we built something good but there have been multiple times where i've been like i've been too soft about certain things because yeah. i've been so like oh you know you can find your own path you can <laughs> i won't be over your shoulder and like all of that's true but there's been times where i've been like my my experience where i came from a work culture that was very toxic and negative and it changed mm -hmm. me in negative ways has caused me to be reactive and now i'm way too loosey-goosey with things and within the past two years and specifically the last year i've reined things in considerably in the fact that i think that some i think people's desire to have a workforce that has like such negative like such like you're you're overtly thoughtful of people's work mm -hmm. experience can cause a situation where it's like 
well, yeah, but then I'm ending up having to do way too much work or where's the accountability? Where's the responsibility? Where's yeah. the, where's the workflow? Yeah. Like, where's the planning? Where's any of these things? Yeah. And I had a mirror held up to me about a year ago where I was like, I've been building a company that's been so focused on people's experiences and not, ex not focused on the growth of the company, not focused on the health of the long-term financial health of the company, mm. not focused on proper structure and hierarchy mm. and learning opportunities and letting people fail. Mm. It's been about overtly about taking care of people. Yeah. And it was a really interesting con contrast between working in a company that changed me in a negative way to working in a company that doesn't challenge people, that that isn't changing people in a way that that allows them to grow. Um, I'm really happy that I, I've got colleagues who've held up a mirror for me and also like good mentors in my life mm. that held up a mirror. And I think Cadence right now is in a space where I think people are getting the appropriate amount of feedback and challenge. Yeah. But if you'd hit me like two and a half years ago, we didn't even do like internal reviews, you know, like yep. we didn't do anything because I just wanted people to not have to experience the negative things that I've experienced in my, in yeah. my career. So there is that, like you, you want things to change, but you don't want to change you in a negative way, but mm -hmm. you also do want to change people, but hopefully in a positive way. hundred percent. This is so interesting and, and it's human nature, right? Because I think that any experience that you have as an individual, um, you then step into your next role, whether it's running a company or what, whatever it might be with a certain level of bias because yeah. you're bringing those prior experiences with you yeah. and you know what you like and what you don't like. Um, and another one that we've been talking a lot about is then um, assuming that just because you didn't like a certain management style, that everybody's not going right. to like that certain management. Like nobody's so, going to like yeah, that. So like, I, I hated like, you know, when I was doing recruiting, um, you know, on the agency side, I hated the whole kind of, you have to make this many calls, you have to do that many, like all of that. And it was so micromanagement to that. And I was like, I rebelled against that massively. I hated that. But then, you know, as, as I've kind of grown in my leadership and managed more and more people, some people really want that. They want to be told exactly what to do. They want to be told how many calls to make. Totally. Right. And I assumed that just because I hated it, that everybody was going to hate it. So I stopped doing it. Yes. But then that person fails. Yeah. That the most obnoxious thing I ever had one of my bosses say to me, and they weren't talking to me, they were talking about someone else they hired. And it was like, I, I view my role as a leader to break people down. They come in and I break <laughs> them down and then I rebuild them in the image that I think they should be in. Wow. And I remember this person saying that and thinking. God complex much. Well, totally. I was like, <laughs> you are such a clown, especially this person who was like, literally had never had a, another job outside of the company they worked in, in their life. It's like, you are not experienced enough just as a professional to be talking about this. You, it, What an embarrassing thing to say to someone is like an, one adult to another. Yeah. I remember thinking that and being like, where is the honoring of who people are, their experiences, yeah. their differences? So I had this like really like kind of like, who are you? And, <laughs> and I wasn't wrong, but I also wasn't right because, you know, just recently we had um, uh, someone in the organization, like young talent, who's like unbelievable person go on to something different, A, because they're getting paid a ton more money, you know, they get to live, you know, in a cool mm. city, but also they weren't being challenged enough. Mm. And I have always kind of, when I bring people into the organization, I'm just like, here's your job, do it however you want to do it. Keep me apprised, but I'm not going to be hanging over your shoulder. And in fact, this person kind of didn't really have a boss. Yeah. Like vaguely I was their boss, but I was like, you do your thing. And something I realized was like, well, that person didn't get enough mentorship, wasn't challenged enough, didn't have enough opportunities. Mm. 
And I thought I was being cool, like, yes. do your thing, you got it. And I'm always constantly pumping their tires because they were exceptional professional, like great professional. And I thought, huh, you know, like, yeah, they're getting paid more. They went to a yeah. different a different industry entirely. They're living in a cool city. But I wonder if we could have kept that person had I been more focused on really sculpting who they could become. Mm-hmm. So not as much as that one person yeah, I was yeah. talking about, but more of an idea of like, well, no, I actually can play a role in your development. Let's talk what that looks like. Totally. And it's just funny when you said like, I've always had this idea about this one leader, like where I was like, I don't want to be like that person. So sometimes yeah. I pick such a far one. Exactly. And in this case, I'm like, oh, it's too far. I should have yeah. been way more involved in that person's development. I was yeah. too hands off thinking I was doing the right thing. But really, I was just reacting to this one person that yeah. I had in my career too far. And it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. I, I had one I remember one time I started a new job and the leader said to me, my boss, my new boss said to me, how do you like to be managed? Mm. And that was such an incredible question. Nobody had ever asked me that Mm. before. And not only did it make me really think about how I like to be managed and be honest with myself too, Mm. because how you like to be managed and how you should be managed are often quite different. Mm. Like I like to be managed by like, just leave me alone. Mm. But what I actually need is more accountability. Yes. Right. So it made me think, but it also was really helpful for him to be able to situationally manage me different from his other direct reports. And I thought that was a really smart, it's really simple and really smart. And don't Mm -hmm. just ask it for the sake of it. You really need to listen. Mm -hmm. But I think that as leaders, we've got, and people managers, we've got so much responsibility. And these people come into our teams expecting something in return. Mm -hmm. And they want leadership, development, training, coaching, mentorship, and 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 accountability and and all and feedback and all of these things and if we if we think that they want to be managed in a certain way but we haven't actually asked mm-hmm. and made them think about how they should be managed as well as how they want to be managed it's such a missed opportunity i i totally agree and what you said about like what i how i would answer that question versus what i really need is yes. interesting because where did i grow professionally the most at that one job where the boss was like i break people there down i grew the most i grew because i had to acclimate myself to like a, what I beloved, what I felt was a very toxic culture. I had to, I had to acclimate so I could survive. Yes. That's not a great way to learn, but where yeah. did I grow most as a professional? That one, 100%. I'm successful yeah. now with cadence because of what I experienced there. And also yeah. like growing up playing in punk bands and everything Yeah, is a huge part of it. The two places where I've grown the most as a professional was being in that space and having to survive and like being like, yeah. oh my gosh, how am I going to get through this and, and figuring things out? And then in cadence, because nobody here, nobody is going to come and tell you what to gonna do. Nobody's going to save me. Nobody's going to give like give me clients or anything. I yeah. had to be like, oh shit. And like it was, it's been a, a period of like such intense growth because when people depend on you and there's no one above you to save the day, it's like constant reflection, constant like, did I do the mm-hmm. right thing? Did I? Did I? Am I? Am I full of shit? Yeah, yeah. Do I actually know what I'm talking about? Is it some weird middle ground, which it is? Like, you know, like, like, what is it? Um, I know if someone said to me, hey, Ram, how do you like to be managed? I would probably say, oh, just like, trust me, you know, like, give me some feet, like, give me feedback, feedback. like stuff like that. But really the code would be just leave me alone. Leave me alone. Yeah, totally. What do I really need? I need someone who holds my feet to the fire, holds up the mirror, makes me be accountable, challenges me as appropriate. And also, also, when I like push back or have like a little bit of like meh kind of moment, will <laughs> yeah. be like patient with me, but then still be firm with me. Be like, okay, hey, you can have your moment. Yeah. You done? Okay, this is what we need to do. 
I don't have that anymore. So I have to do all of that to myself. And yeah. it's, it's really interesting. Cause like I've had, or I say it's interesting, at least it's interesting to me. I can talk all about, all about all of this, like being a CEO. Most of it was learned by having really bad bosses. And then also, then, then also realizing, oh shit, well now I'm the boss. So how do I not be a bad boss? Yeah. But also bad bosses come in a lot of different formats. Yes. What version of a of a, what version of a bad boss am I trying to avoid right now, and what what version of a bad boss might that cause me to become? Yeah, hundred percent. And it is, it's, <clears throat> and it is about being able to flex your style yeah. as a boss because everybody needs something different, and it's really helpful for that person to yes evaluate what it is they actually need, not want, mm-hmm. as a from a manager, but then be able to articulate it and communicate it, and you as an individual be able to say. Oh, that person needs more from me in in that particular area, and that person needs more from me in that particular area. Um, You know, and that's it's so fascinating, I think. And people forget that um, that people have different needs and need different styles. And even sometimes, I need to be managed differently depending on the situation and the circumstance. Like, if I'm way out of my depth on something, Mm -hmm. then I actually need you to be a little bit more directive. But if I'm, you know, completely in my comfort zone, then please forget about me and like, just let me get on with it. Yeah. So it, it, you have to be so situational and it's only managers that are able to bring that kind of empathy and understanding who can actually kind of switch the way of, of, of managing, but also that are comfortable in saying, what do you need? Mm-hmm. Tell me what you need. How can I do better for you? Like, what do you need for me as a manager in order for, for you to be more successful? Totally. I, I even just think of this morning two conversations I had one where it's like this person know, totally knows what they're talking about I should just step out of this and let them do their thing yeah to my very next conversation was like what's going on in this person's world right now is they don't realize they're over their skis I have to step in in a kind way and, and assert a little bit more control mm. and being able to read that situation and be from call to call and like I love what you said like flex your style yeah that matters and also, does it matter in your first job as a leader? No, because the first job in your leader, you're learning, you're going to totally. do all these things. But for senior leadership, you got to be able to move with people. Yeah. Now, speaking of senior leadership, I think this is a good time to, to uh, pivot into, tell us about what you're doing today. Doing today. So <clears throat> working um, in a whole new space for me, mm-hmm. which is in the uh, tech space. So working for a company called Ada as the head of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look after recruitment, total rewards, benefits, compensation, all of what we call our employee experience, uh, HR business partners, learning and development, mm-hmm. DEI, um, as well as some internal events and communications. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ada is a really, really fun organization. Mm-hmm. Um, with a really compelling like backstory as well as a kind of vision to, to where they're going and what, what they're looking to achieve. Um, and again, they're, they're kind of progressive in terms of their thought process mm-hmm. and let's try new things and let's, you know, see how this works out and let's see if we can figure this out. And, and it's, it's really cool. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but they're open to trying um, which I think is, is a really exciting environment to work in. Um, we're, <clears throat> we're kind of in a, a scale up phase as well right now. So it feels like chaos. Yeah. Like every day is, is new chaos to come and, and bring on board. Um, and it's that interesting kind of adolescent phase where they think they know everything, but they don't really. And there's this kind of craving for some structure, but rebelling against it at the same time. And yeah, so they're like a 15 year old 
at the moment in yeah. terms of kind of that maturity. So it's it's super fun. So yeah, lots of kind of building and creating and um, influencing, you know, culturally and, and developmentally how the organization grows. So lots of fun. So is it possible for a company that is scaling up so quickly and also has like your average worker hasn't been there that long. Is it possible to have an intentional company culture? Hmm. This is a fascinating question. And this was something that um, <clears throat> when I was speaking to Ada about joining them was, was one of the question marks in my mind. It was like, okay, how, how does an organization that's a digital first be very, very young, see scaling up super quickly mm-hmm. Um, how, how do they create culture? Like what, what does that look like? What does it feel like? Um, and so that was one of the kind of the big question marks and that was my leap of faith. So there was a lot of things I was super comfortable with. And there's a couple of things where you're always taking a leap of faith. And that was one of the leaps of faith. Um, and I don't know that I've got a, um, a solid answer, but what I've learned over the last nine months is incredible. Um, and the answer is generally yes although it's evolving and changing and will continue to do so for, for years to come. Um, and so the constant is change. But in terms of that culture, there's been a very clear precedent set by the founders, as well as some of the longer serving um, uh, individuals in, the, in senior roles. Um, and you know that, that kind of foundation from where that culture comes is very strong and very clear. Mm-hmm. It, it comes out in the values. For example, like empathy is one of our value. Mm-hmm. Um, courage is one of our value. Authenticity is one of our values. Mm-hmm. So when you think about those as values, you think about um, you know, people showing up for each other within an organization, mm-hmm. providing feedback and being courageous around that, um, coming as their, their authentic selves, their whole, what we call the whole human. This is why we have social workers on staff and others because you know, we recognize that <clears throat> It's not just um, it's not just the person between the hours of nine to five. Like you're, you've got things happening in your personal life that are going to influence your ability to bring your best self to work. And so, how do we support that as a whole human? But that kind of culture from the ground up is really, really tangible, mm-hmm. and you can feel that. And then, and then there's this um, this 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 kind of community that's been built um, in Slack. So this, the Slack is what we use as our main form of communication, our communication tool. And there's this incredible community that's been built there that is such a mix of, of work and personal that from one minute I can go from collaborating with finance, legal, and marketing on a particular project in Slack asynchronously to then going to hashtag dog chat, and, <laughs> which is one of my favorites, of course. <laughs> or hashtag random, another one where I've learned many, many things over the last nine months. Uh. But there's these other like pockets where, the, where you're having your water cooler conversations. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, rather than standing at a water cooler and going, oh, look what cute thing my dog did yesterday. Yeah. It's posted in hashtag dog chat. And so in between meetings, I can go, oh, look at the puppies. You know, it's, it's, it's such a, yeah, it's an incredible community there where people have that ability to um, engage with each other in a way that I didn't think was possible in a in a virtual environment. Mm. So it's it's super interesting. Yeah, well, I, I love what you're saying. Uh, first of all, like around vult- virtual environments, like I, I just what I, I just encourage people when they're like, oh, you know, unless it's face to face, it's not the same. Really, <laughs> I, my two my two best friends, one lives in Boston, the other one lives in Seattle. 
Like they're still my best friends. And I, yeah. the guy in Boston, I see every like, I don't know, like two or three years. The guy in Seattle during the pandemic, I didn't see him no. for years or at least two years. These are like my closest friends. You can absolutely have great environments done, vote, yeah. vote. Um, great cultures, all those things. It's just like anything. You just learn how to do it. You have to be intentional about it and you have, you have to, to be, be purposeful about it. And totally. does it take more effort? Maybe a little bit mm -hmm. to begin with, but then it becomes second nature and that just is. Yeah. Um, not to take away from being in person with people. Love it, clearly. Yeah. It's great to see you. Yeah, of course, but it, it, it's fine, right? It, yeah, it, but it's okay. I, I, I got to like, you know, I just encourage people like that. The whole like working remote thing is like yeah. totally fine. Like yes. companies can totally do it. People could totally do it, have a great culture. You, you do have to be intentional. It requires yep. a higher level of management. But what I'd say is I don't think that people in their face-to-face -face, uh, interactions have enough intention. Right. Like, That's I think one of the worst things about the work world is people not being intentional enough in their interactions, which leads to all sorts of things that we yep. talk about. You have to be more intentional online. That's good. Yep. It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I Can I push on a couple of those values that you mm. talked about, company values? How can empathy be a value, a company value? <laughs> it's it's really about how we show up for each other. Mm -hmm. it, that's what it kind of gets to. So I, I get I get your point. Um, how is empathy a value? But it's it's the behaviors that come out from um, what the word and the and the and the what the word empathy invokes. Yeah. And so it's about intentionally supporting each other mm. and our clients and customers and. And that piece of it, and just really looking to take the time to understand and like really genuinely understand what it is what what is it about that other person or that client or that customer or, or that team member that um, you know will help you and them have better relationships mm -hmm. and build and be more creative in terms of the products that we that, that we develop um, or the um, or, or the projects that we work on together. So that kind of empathy piece is. And it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I didn't, I didn't know it would, would be this intense, mm -hmm. but it comes through in so many interactions mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we've got channels like uh, got gratitude, which is a really strong one mm -hmm. where people are calling out constantly. There's like multiple times a day, um, you know, how great other people are and the amazing things they've done for them or their colleagues or their clients or whatever. And, yeah, just just that time to to just kind of, you okay, good. Like, seriously, how are you doing? You know, and be really real about it. Yeah, yeah. It it shows up in the behaviors. It it does, and so the reason I pushed on that a because like I find that interesting for empathy being a value, and I, yeah. I don't have a a good or a bad take on it. Just I was more curious about yeah. it. The reason I'm talking about it uh, now that you're in the seat that you're in. Um, Things like company values or when people say like our pillars or whatever it is, mm. you can kind of have one or two things. And I actually will boil it down to one or two things. You've got a, a bunch of well-intentioned people who came together and were like, that's, that's it. I love that. That's great. And then you, if you were to ask them three or four questions about that thing, they'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It I mean, sounds good. It sounds good. And, and we mean it. And, and it's not that I don't think they mean it. It's just they haven't done the rigorous work yeah. to understand what it means versus doing the rigorous work. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, there's an organization where we have a mutual friend who works there who came up with a set of pillars that I think are the most thought out pillars I've ever seen. And they did multiple day sessions, full day sessions on their feet, talking about these things like small group work, doing it by iteration, yeah. um, which I'm a huge fan of. They came up with something that is so 
thoughtful. And it doesn't mean that if someone looked at it, they wouldn't be like, yeah, what does that even mean? Or why'd you, but that's my jerk voice. Like, that's, that's like, or I call it my idiot voice. It's like, yeah, what does that mean? And I, I act like that myself, but like people can look at it and be skeptical and, po- and try and poke holes in it. It's not that people shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And then when you come up with pillars or values, you should anticipate people are going to be like that. Yeah. Of course they're going to be like that. Not because people are bad, because people have a right to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. It's about whether or not you can be in the conversation and be like, oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, you think that sucks? Tell me why you think that sucks. Let me tell you why I think it doesn't. Like, yeah. let's have that conversation. Oh, why did we pick these words? Great. Let's talk about it. So when I asked you about the empathy piece, and I hope you didn't feel I was trying to no. do a gotcha moment. Just I thought empathy is an interesting value, it is, value yeah. to have. The fact that you could speak about it like, oh, yeah, do, 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 do. Yeah. That's the difference maker for me at senior levels. Senior level is such a, it's such a wild space to be in because you're like kind of responsible for architecting all of this stuff mm-hmm. and you're taking your best shot at doing what you're like, I hope this captures what will be There's best a lot of hope. It. Yeah, like a lot of hope. <laughs> There's a lot of hope. But you got to be willing to be in those discussions. Yeah. And um, so you now in this, in a company, again, scaling up really fast, like going from 20,000 people to 500 people. Yeah. Actually, which is harder, being in the 20,000 people role or the 500 people uh, role? Probably the 500 people role. <laughs> right. So There's as, less places to hide. Um, yeah, there's less places to hide. Okay. What's been the thing that has challenged? Actually, I'll tell you, uh, let me ask you this way. Now that you're in this role, you understand what it, you understand like all of the challenges ahead. How has this role changed you for the better? Ah, gosh, that's a great question. From a professional perspective again it's that it's that next level of accountability and responsibility um it's it's the ability again to to be able to make smart decisions quickly mm-hmm. um but also not being afraid to fail mm-hmm. because we do have that opportunity and then you know i guess professionally and personally kind of mixed in as a, as a leader um you know, you, you really are day by day rallying people together under a common cause to be able to, to help manage that change. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it with a level of change that's being exerted upon them on a regular basis. And so it's, it's super interesting. So just being, there's, there's more, there's more switch from the weeds to the, to the top mm-hmm. that happens a lot quicker. So getting comfortable right in the weeds of something at that kind of granular level. Um, it could be an employee relations issue. It could be, um, you know, where do we spend our next $5,000 on a DEI initiative? It could be, um, you know, what, what are we doing to, um, help get better data from our talent acquisition tracking, Mm -hmm. like anything from in that kind of weeds to that top level. Okay. Are the right are our values the right values? Um, you know, are we heading in the right direction from a um, a culture perspective? Like, how do we think about digital first going forward? How are we managing asynchronous communicate? Like the top level thinking pieces of you know, are we paying you know the right salaries to people? Is our compensation mix mm-hmm. like you know thinking the kind of so that switch between the weeds and the and the and the strategy piece is is quicker. Yeah. Um, well, it's amazing you say that. Uh, one of the best CEOs I've ever known, um, I saw go from like 40,000 feet thinking 
to the, like a blade of grass in a mm. heartbeat and then like shoot, shoot right up. back up. And I was in a meeting where everyone was quite, was quite used to that. And I was like blown away that this person who runs a, like tens of thousands of people working in this organization that he could just go from like to the most detailed thing that someone would be doing in a day, like a frontline person and yeah. understand it all the way back up. Um, the ability to do that at a senior level, I think is like exceptional and, and totally necessary. But the ability to do it without causing chaos when you go down to the weeds. Yes. Because if you just jump in, mess about with the weeds and then get back out again and you just leave a trail of chaos behind you, that's not helpful either. Yeah, uh, I, and I, that's a great addition. It's about going down and demonstrating understanding and being able to like yeah. check in with something without going down and being like, well, I want it to be like this, that, or that, or that, and like mess it up. Totally, yeah. totally. All right, so I'm going to ask you three questions that are closing off. Okay. All right, these are the three hardest questions you're going to be asked all day. Okay, you ready? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me about get shit, hashtag get shit done and how that's changed for you over time in your career. Uh, okay, good. So um, fondly, uh, my team uh, gave, gave me a hashtag. Like I, I, this never happened before. It is a unique to it's you quite, hashtag. It is. It's, okay, Karis, this is your hashtag and it is get shit done. And um, it, it has been my, I guess, modus operandi for many, many years in terms of how I operate. Um, I, I'm an obstacle remover. I'm a, uh, focus on the prize, move forward, progress iteratively, go forward this way, uh, type of person and, and always have been. And so, you know, when, when we're working as a team going towards a goal, then I'm, I'm going to be kind of pushing to, to do that. And so my team, um, gave me this amazing hashtag of, of get shit done. Um, which I love and I've got mugs and I've got uh, <laughs> notebooks and pens and signs and all kinds of paraphernalia that they've bought sticky notes that they've bought me over the years. We you got a shit. whole merch drop. About a whole it. merch drop. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, which I love and it's, 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 it's fantastic. And it does, you know, kind of, uh, um, describe me very, very aptly. And I know it was a, an appreciated strength of mine from my team. However, <laughs> um, like anything, there's always a flip side. And this uh, get shit done um, hashtag also was through a, a, um, somebody amazing did a help me do a 360 feedback, um, helped me um, get the feedback that that get shit done mentality was showing up as me just being good at executing. Mm -hmm and not being the person that they would turn to, to be a strategic thinker. Mm -hmm. And that was such an incredible piece of feedback that I've had throughout my career, mm -hmm. was that it's okay to be good at something and do it really, really well, and we should all play to our strengths and all of those good things. But sometimes it can go too far and be detrimental because it was actually holding me back from career development and progression mm -hmm. because the perception was that I could only get the execution done, I couldn't do the strategic thinking. Yeah. And so I had to step up my ability to demonstrate that I could do both and that I had the skills to do both. Mm -hmm. And once I was more intentional about that, mm -hmm. um, about kind of putting my best foot forward from a strategic thinking perspective, things started to change for me from a career development perspective. Okay, great, great answer. Uh, Spencer, what's the hashtag for my leadership style? Uh, I'll come back to you. I got to ask Karis two more questions. I'm Not everybody gets a hashtag. I know. I'm saying. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I hope it's good. Um, all right. Question number two. Very, very difficult. 
Okay. Um, I have had the pleasure of getting to know your team over, over time. Yeah. And also I've known your leaders as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had some pretty incredible mentors in mm-hmm. your life. Uh, is there any mentor that you want to shout out? And is there anything that, and you could say no if you don't want to, but are there any mentors you want to shout out? And also, what for you is the most important thing that you consider around your own mentoring other people? Like, what's the thing that you hold dearest in your heart around mentoring? Mm, I love mentorship. I think this is amazing. So there's probably two I'll call out. One was um, at a time in my career where I was shifting away um, from a great career that I'd had in kind of on the agency recruiting side and developed and grown in my leadership and and all that kind of great stuff, even run my own business for a while and all sorts of really fond of it, but we're shifting away to that into, into a different kind of role. And this guy, Len Posniak, um, from Catalyst Paper took a chance on me. Um, he hired me from agency recruiting into, um, a pulp and and paper manufacturing company of which I'd never worked um, in a role that not only had some of the elements of the recruiting side, but also had HR function to it as well. And um, yeah, he ga- he gave me a chance and he was, he's retired now, but he'd kind of seen it all and, and been there and done it and got the t-shirt. So his level of experience and knowledge but also the level of um, humor and empathy. But also he was somebody that would stand up for the people, um, but could sit down at a board table and be super, super strong, but very influential. Like just seeing him in action and seeing him work and also knowing that he had my back at every single step. Um, He would say something like, uh, Karis, if you fuck up through an act, act of volition, like, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. there's no saving it. Yeah. But if you're coming at something and you fuck up because you're doing something from the right place and you believe that, you, that you're making the right decision with all of the information you have and you've got the right intention, I've got your back 100%. So never sit back and don't do something because you're a bit scared. Mm-hmm. Like, give it a shot. Try something. Do something. Yeah. And that was amazing advice. I love yeah. that. And then the second person I'd, I'd shout out is Kerry Fraser. Friend of the show, uh, Carrie friend, Fraser. Friend of the show, mm-hmm. um, who also, um, you know, when she was leaving Collier's, my last company, um, she stood up and said, you should give Karis a shot. And, you know, that kind of, again, that faith and into taking that huge leap from being in a world that was comfortable for me because I'd been in it for a long time, mm-hmm. a space I was comfortable in, into a whole new world of, of leadership. Mm-hmm. And her having that faith in me and and, and vocalizing it, um, and just letting me know that she had the 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 kind of trust in me that I could do it was huge, and that gave me a lot of confidence to be able to kind of go into that role. And even the gazillions of areas I didn't know and I didn't have experience in, um, knowing that she thought I'd get it and I could learn it and I could get there was 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 powerful. Oh yeah. All right. So around mentorship, what's near and dear to your heart about it? Like from your style of mentorship, like what do you keep central in your approach to it? Yeah, I I love doing mentorship. It's just something that um, it's so it's it's just I get so much back from it. Right. Mm -hmm. You you kind of have these conversations and you're the mentor and they're asking all these questions. But you, you, you ask questions back and you dig into it and you 
you explore and you evaluate. And I learned so much from that too, that I, I get so much out of it. So I always try and go in with a completely open mind and a whole ton of curiosity. Because if, if you as a mentor um, just teach, you're missing the opportunity to be taught. Mm -hmm. And so um, I always try and show up to ask the questions as well of like, if they're coming to me, okay, I've got this particular issue I wanna deal with. Mm -hmm. Ask so many questions because you, you can be taught as well. And through that process, both of you come out with some learning. Mm -hmm. And so by just teaching, you're missing the opportunity to be a mentor. Heck yeah. All right, you ready for the last question? It's the All hardest. Right. You might you might bow out. I don't know. Okay. You're a dedicated motorcyclist. I am. Who is the most annoying and why? Pedestrians, drivers, <laughs> cyclists, or other motorcyclists? I only get to pick one. You have to pick one and why. Oh, um drivers. Yeah, I'd say drivers and I'd say why. And I've been a driver like since I was 17 for many, many years. But I think drivers, um, when you're a motorcyclist, are probably the biggest hazard mm -hmm. because um, there's less instinct when you're driving to think about a two-wheeled motorized vehicle coming around the corner or coming in the other direction. It's, it's just less instinctive. And so not through any kind of act of malice, but I think drivers just are thoughtless. Yeah. When it comes to motorcyclists. Have you ever beefed with a driver? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I will say as someone who, who I've done a lot of cycling in my life, man, I've beefed with drivers hard, like hard and be like, I've, you know, you're in Vancouver. I, I've in, in any day I can be on all three sides of the, I could be someone who's walking and I could be looking at a cyclist, like, how dare you? Yeah. But then like an hour later, I could be on my bike and look at a car and be like, how dare you? <laughs> or be in my car and look at a pedestrian and be like, how dare you? So 100%. we live in a city of, of <laughs> high offense at all times. <laughs> but I will say the motorcyclist car uh, relationship seems uh, it's rife with difficulties. Well, and, and it, yeah, just that lack of visibility. If I'm, if I'm riding in a lane, a car, won't see me and think that they can pull into that lane. And it's like, hello, I'm here. Look out, look yeah. out. And even the, the most annoying thing, you're going to get me started now. The most annoying thing is <laughs> they mess up. You point it out to them and they get cross with you. Oh yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, no, but you were the idiot, not oh, me. Totally. I, I, and also, and then you're cross at me. What for being here? I have definitely been on both sides of that equation too, where I'm like, how dare you? And then five minutes later, I'm like, yeah, they were right. Bad. I was really wrong. wrong. But I've also been the like, how dare what you're mad at me? You're the one who I did do. it. Okay. This is it. This has been a great conversation. As we're closing off, anything you want to draw attention to, any shout outs you want to give, you want to share it, tell people where they can find you. Uh sure, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm absolutely there. I think um one one shout out I would give is, as I said, we're we're a company in high growth, we're scaling up. There's a ton of opportunity at a really fun company that has an amazing culture. Are we perfect? No, but we've got a lot of things right. And so if anybody's looking for a fun tech role, um, helping to bring VIP experiences for brands, check us out, ada.cx. Heck yeah. Excellent. All right. Any last words for us? We're closing off. No, thank you though. This has been so much fun. Heck yeah. This is great. <laughs> oh wait, Spencer, what's the hashtag? Own your shit. Oh, I like it. Hashtag own your, your shit. Shit. That is it. Yes, one hundred percent. And I like to feel that I that I own my shit. You can 
you can say that to people or it's for yourself. Yeah. yeah. I, I spend a lot of time trying to own my shit. Good, man. That's, yeah. that's brilliant. Get shit done. Own your shit. Own your shit. There's so much shit. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit. Well, on that note, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And Spencer, drop the beat. What?